just a brief outline to the five things I'd like to talk about in this uh, brief uh, 25 minutes or so. Uh, first is that wine is known to have cardioprotective effects. Secondly, that excessive alcohol consumption can also lead to excess morbidity and mortality. Uh, third, the issue uh, a condition called the metabolic syndrome, which is basically chronic disease, accumulation of chronic diseases that we're familiar with. Uh, fourth, the harmful effects of alcohol. And then finally, policy issues related to alcohol control. Uh, much has been made in recent years of the cardioprotective role of wine consumed in moderation, which is a common habit among many people in Western countries. The, uh, especially red wine, which is known to have polyphenols such as resveratrol, which is known to be protective as well as the antioxidant effects of red wine. <clears throat> the com there's a, uh, a phenomenon called the J-curve, which describes the cardioprotective effects of, of red wine or alcohol. And for example, this is the relative risk of total mortality against amount of alcohol consumed. And this is a common pattern. You'll see at uh, no alcohol as the standard, you then see the uh, low levels of alcohol to be protective and only at higher levels does it, is it damaging to your health. Now this is total mortality and the same effect is seen with uh, the relative risk or the odds ratio of, of uh, stroke. And so the similar pattern is found. So it's assumed that alcohol taken at small levels is, is protective. I might <clears throat> first point out, lest anyone be aware, <clears throat> be, be afraid, I'm not a teetotaler, and I'm not here to have bash uh, alcohol consumption per se. I hope you see it's more scientific than that. Another way of looking at it is uh, several situations, cardiovascular deaths, uh, adjusted for diet and exercise, cardio, uh, coronary heart disease, as well as stroke mortality, for non-drinkers as the norm, you see some protective effect at a light level of consumption, and then you get to moderate or heavy, that effect is lost. In fact, it's even found to be harmful for stroke uh, at the heavy consumption level. And so uh, the, the, the data is not completely clear, but this is continual pattern you see in research done in North America. However, it's also known that excessive alcohol consumption does lead to excess mortality. In Russia, China, Korea, and India, people primarily consume spirits, which contain up to 48% alcohol, uh, and experience excess mortality from liver cancer, different cancers of the digestive tract, liver disease, and pancreatic disease. Uh, I have data that suggests that 95% of the alcohol consumed in India is actually spirits, not red wine. Uh, from Russia, a country known for high alcohol consumption of very strong uh, liquors, uh, Zaridzi and a group of researchers found a dose-response relationship between death due to pancreatic disease in Russian men who consumed more than or greater than or equal to three lit half-liter bottles of vodka per week with a very significant relative risk. And uh, research in Denmark by Christensen et al. found a high alcohol intake was associated with a higher risk of pancreatitis. So before we become too enthusiastic about the benefits of alcohol, and I checked with my primary care doctor this week when I was in for an exam, and he said they're, still not, they're, they're not yet recommending a, a one glass of wine per day for uh, health benefits, although there are some uh, family practice physicians who are beginning to say that that should be a part of our regular risk uh, management uh, health regimens. But before we become too enthusiastic about that, we have to consider the uh, type and amount of alcohol consumed and the cultural context and expectations. Furthermore, we, have to, we want to consider because the purpose of this conference is to think about these issues of policy, and in this case, health, 
from a theological perspective, we also want to remind ourselves that Scripture teaches us that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and therefore we should do those things which are protective of it, and furthermore, that we should avoid intoxication because it's both sinful and harmful to oneself and to uh, our communities. The third uh, section in my presentation is introducing uh, the concept of metabolic syndrome. How many people are familiar with the phrase metabolic syndrome? Okay. Metabolic syndrome is a condition you will be in a moment. It's very simple to understand. It's a constellation of health problems, which all of us are afraid of because they're being talked about in, in the, uh, these days in the popular media. A constellation of where an individual presents with three or more of the following five symptoms. Elevated triglycerides, low HDLs, obesity, in this case determined by waist circumference, hyperglycemia, and elevated blood pressure. The argument is, and the research demonstrates, that coronary heart disease is influenced by diabetes. That's the, the, the right side. But diabetes is also uh, increased by the existence of metabolic syndrome in an individual, which can either work through diabetes or directly to increase coronary heart disease. Uh, also, high LDLs is another direct indicator for coronary heart disease. And I'm sure you now understand the issue of metabolic syndrome. It's very, very simple and something we're hearing a lot about these days. For those who want more detail, these are the five criteria for metabolic syndrome. Increased waist for circumference for men greater than or equal to 35.4 inches and for women 31 inches. Elevated triglycerides beyond 150 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, low HDLs, and there you see the standards. Elevated blood pressure, that does not mean diagnosed hypertension. As you see, the criteria are lower than hypertension because this is a preventive intervention. And then the last, impaired fasting glucose of greater than 100 milligrams per deciliter. So these are the five criteria that are used. Um, by the way, I'm using the Asian standards because my research comes from China. So uh, actually, Asians are allowed less waist circumference. That's the main criteria than Caucasians. So Caucasians can get by, get by with a little more girth and not suffer coronary heart disease at the same rates. I'm work, I live my, most of my life in China, so of course my colleagues and friends there are very resentful of that. <clears throat> so let's go to China. Uh, I was, as was mentioned, I've been living in China. I'm now China director for the organization Evergreen. And if anyone's interested in learning more about what we do there, you could find us at uh, evergreenchina.net, not org, but .net, evergreenchina.net. And we've been involved in ministry primarily through in, in the health, trying to develop, helping China develop sustainable primary health care systems. And it's been a very satisfying experience during this time of China's rapid growth. I also might mention if anyone's interested in talking about China, uh, I'd be happy to talk more at lunch or at another time. Um, China has a custom of drinking baijiu or fenjiu. Are you Chinese? Okay, so you're familiar. And, um, and so a lot, most of the research that promotes the health benefits of alcohol consumption at low levels are done in North America, and wine is a common alcohol in North America. Wine is not drank very much in China. It's very, very rare. But rather they drink the 48% funjiu, uh, baijiu, uh, longjiu, and other similar strong liquors. Um, so this is the kind of event you'll see. You'll see the two bottles of liquor in the back, uh, some of these men will drink up to a half a liter of liquor in these events. These will happen at least once a month, for, depending upon your position. The higher you are in society, the more frequent. Um, 
And so the expectation is that the men in this event will be drinking, and they don't just drink, I'll show you in this one, they don't just use a shot glass. This is 48% alcohol, between 35 and 48%. They don't just use a shot glass, but here you can see these guys are using a regular glass, and they're taking this, at, you know, a glass this large, and they're filling it this full, and they're actually drinking that all in one shot, you know, chugging it. And so it makes, you know, your college beer drinking fests in the U.S. seem like uh, peanuts in comparison. This is very high doses of alcohol intake in a very short period of time, which is very uh, harmful to your pancreas. And so uh, this is the alcohol culture of China, which is very refined. So on one level, it's a very special type of event. It cements your friendships. Uh, it's a time of celebration. They very seldom drive, so the issue of, of, say, drunk driving and such is not a big problem. So in their mind, it's just a time to cut loose and, and enjoy this event. Um, but they're not aware that it's harmful to their personal health. They also, I think, are beginning to buy into the North American concept that, health, that alcohol has health benefits. And they have a notion that because the alcohol is, is uh, very hot when you take it down, that it must somehow help to soften your coronary arteries and improve your overall health. So they have their own systems of, of, of thinking it through. Now, this is an experience that's common in most of Asia, this type of alcohol culture. We have been doing research on this issue uh, in, the last, in recent years, and here's the collaborators, and I should mention my colleague Judy Perry and also uh, Dr. Wang Ping from Chinese Hospital that we work together um, for their hard work in this, and I'll present the results of our work together. <clears throat> and so uh, two years ago, we decided to determine the rates of metabolic syndrome and the correlates of metabolic syndrome in a group of 800 people between age 44 and 52. You may be aware that China's chronic disease rates have been lower than in the U.S., and so we see a window of opportunity where issues of obesity and chronic disease can still be prevented in China, whereas in the U.S. we're already at an epidemic stage and it's very hard now to rein in. Uh, and so we did this research project where we did interview 42-question survey with these 800 subjects. And that's Judy, by the way, my wonderful colleague. Um, we drew blood to, uh, to do uh, blood chemistry, uh, obviously anthrop anthropomorphics, and then also analyzing the data. <clears throat> And today I'm just going to introduce a very small portion of that because the topic is, is, is more about the policy-related issues. So here, just a general introduction. The main things I'd like to point out is that these are middle to lower class people. You can see 60 to 70% of them are living on less than 147 US dollars a month per capita. Um, Occupation-wise, professional and clerical, about 30%, but you can see the number who are retired or unemployed, even though they're only about 50 years of age. Um, education, 40% are less than nine years. Um, which isn't bad, they're not illiterate, but they're middle to lower level class. Exercise, 60% are getting less than 150 minutes per week. Actually, that's not too bad. If we were to compare the same population in the U.S., it probably wouldn't even be that good. Um, smoking rate, you can see men, 64%, women, almost none. And then alcohol, men, 72% drink alcohol, women, 12%. So the data are, are cumulative. I didn't divide by male and female, but you can see the men are the ones contributing to alcohol to the alcohol data. And the results of that uh, demonstrate, I'm just gonna show a couple of tables, that uh, for those men, so here across the top is alcohol consumption, none occasionally quit, quit or a year or more, and then greater than or equal to two times a week of these intense alcohol uh, sessions. 42% uh, 
metabolic rate of metabolic syndrome. So the, the outcome variable here is metabolic syndrome, yes or no. So 42% of, uh, of those who do, do not drink alcohol have metabolic syndrome, and 59% of those who are drinking alcohol greater than or equal to two times a week. This is a very interesting result, which we did not expect. And that chi-square, as you can see, is significant. But after we got the results, we found that there are some, results, there are some data from Japan and also another project in China that found a similar result. <clears throat> Looked at from what is it of the five criteria in the metabolic syndrome, what is it that's contributing to metabolic syndrome or what is the variable that's most sensitive? And what we found is that it's the mean fasting blood sugar. So you see the blood sugar, 5.58 millimoles per liter. I put the comparison for the American standards. <clears throat> so 5.6 is 100 milligrams per deciliter for anybody, medical people. So you can see that those who are not drinking, the mean is about the norm. And then the mean fasting blood sugar increases, 5.79 for occasional, 5.82, and then 6.14. And so this is the main reason for increased metabolic syndrome rates is increased fasting blood sugar in those who are drinking alcohol, which makes sense because it's hard on the pancreas and leads to pancreatitis. Um, looked at another way, self-reported diabetes rates also increased in the same manner so that those who, who, who did not drink had, there was a 5.8% rate of diabetes in this surveyed population, increasing to 9.815 and then 11.7. And so again, rate of diabetes also is increasing with increased alcohol consumption. <clears throat> Binge alcohol drinking is a common cause of acute pancreatitis, and the results of our study demonstrate that the alcohol intake, uh, uh, that this is the, excuse me, results of the study support this hypothesis that high alcohol increases the rates of diabetes. Um, without going into a deep physiology lecture, you may remember in the pancreas you have islet cells that produce glucagon and insulin to regulate your blood glucose and acinar cells, which secrete enzymes that are used in the digestive system. It's the acinar cells that are affected usually in pancreatitis, but it actually affects the other cells as well. And so pancreatitis will then, this is the, the route through which pancreatitis contributes to uh, altered uh, blood glucose levels. And in our, in our argument that that's, and we don't have the data to prove that, that's our argument that this is the channel that it's working through. The fourth thing that I'd like to talk about is something that we're also familiar with, the harmful effects of alcohol, ischemic heart disease, cirrhosis, cancers, depression, uh, obviously, and then in falls, intentional injuries, traffic accidents, accidental poisoning, and then alcohol use disorders. That would be alcoholism, and I'm not talking about alcoholism today per se. It's more the constellation of issues. And this table, I'm sorry it's not very clear, but this table is, is helpful to see how alcohol, uh, how it works. So the left side is patterns of drinking, so that would be the type of setting and what type of alcohol you're drinking. And then the right side, the volume of alcohol consumed. And then they're working through the left side is the toxic and beneficial biochemical, effect, biochemical effects of alcohol. And then they will be the ones to result in chronic disease, either increased or decreased rates. Um, the middle one, that of intoxication. And then that points down to the box on the bottom, which is accidents and injuries or acute diseases as a result of intoxication. The average volume influences your dependence, alcohol dependence, and then that obviously is the main issue with the chronic social, uh, uh, social problems, you know, family dysfunction and other things. And then the other one is the acute social consequences. So this table helps to summarize the negative consequences of alcohol. So what about policy issues uh, related to alcohol? Um, 
I think it's time to consider how alcohol, the alcohol industry could be regulated. I'm not arguing for prohibition. From 1920 to 33, you know, the U.S. had a relatively failed attempt to control alcohol by use of prohibition. Uh, and uh, I don't think that that was helpful. And in the current era, Thailand is a country that's had a failed experience where because of a desire to grow their GDP, they became very relaxed in their alcohol industry. And nowadays in Thailand, you can find sort of like children set up a Kool-Aid stand in the summer. They have alcohol stands, and you can get alcohol in Thailand almost at any street corner. Just stop after work, take a shot, and go home. Um, and so they deregulated the industry because of the desire to increase tax revenues. The result of that is... Uh, alcohol increase, alcohol intake increased. Uh, they can get their alcohol quickly. Uh, alcohol dis use disorders in Thai drinkers increased, and um, it was found to be the second most significant contributor to the, the overall disability-adjusted life years, which are called dailies. And so it didn't work in Thailand. So what are the concerns with alcohol control? Countries increased with incre obsessed with increasing GDP are reluctant to control alcohol and tobacco. They want the revenues. Increasing discretionary income allows increased leisure expenditure, uh, promotion in the media, obviously, a liberal licensing system, and then regulations are relaxed, such as when and where you can sell alcohol. Some of the policy considerations, uh, alcohol, as I've argued, contributes to the global burden of disease, but it's not high on the health agenda. As with tobacco, vested interests seek to subvert anything that will control it. So I'm sort of arguing that some of what's been used successfully with tobacco control could be used with the alcohol industry. Um, there are cost-effective population-based measures, such as availability of alcohol, affordability, how it's marketed, controlling, uh, under, driving under the influence of alcohol, et cetera. But these all need multi-sectoral activities. You know, the tobacco, uh, the tobacco rate continued to increase in the 80s and 90s when we kept telling people, stop smoking, stop smoking. And I don't know how successful the tobacco control has been, and I, I know there's a debate about the value of that and does it reduce human responsibility and such. Um, but I do think that the uh, rates of tobacco use in the U.S. have stabilized and maybe even declined, except among young people. So maybe the same thing could be done successfully. So we need an international response. In terms of a theological perspective, what action can be taken? I've just argued for some legislation that could be used, and then the other is church activism. I know in the Prohibition era, some churches were famous for tearing down the bars. You know, the women went and tore down the bars. Uh, are there ways, both on a personal level and also a community level, for churches to become involved in, in promoting responsible use of alcohol? And then also, in a new book that's come out by Hunter, he argues for the faithful presence, that is, the integrity of the faithful individual living out the godly life in their setting and maybe all of the above is actually the best solution. So in summary, wine is cardioprotective, but excessive alcohol consumption does contribute to excess morbidity and mortality. Alcohol can contribute to the global increase in metabolic syndrome and associated chronic diseases. Uh, the harmful effects of alcohol are not being addressed in a significant way from a policy position, and responsible public policy is needed to limit the harm of, of alcohol globally. I might argue that J Japan has taken metabolic syndrome seriously in part because they have a national health care system, and so now they weigh, the, they weigh their employees like once a month, and they have special sessions during the workday to allow them to go exercise in order to keep their weight down, and that's a method of controlling the rate of metabolic syndrome in Japan. So there are ways that I don't think that would work in America. Imagine that. Oh, fatty, go off and exercise a little bit because you're taking down, you know, you're using up precious health insurance resources. Um, but the Japanese are, are okay with that because of their group culture.
So I'd just like to open up the floor now to a little discussion. Uh, I'll just throw out a few questions. How do you understand the beneficial effects of wine balanced against the many harmful effects of alcohol? Should alcohol be more strictly regulated? Are, as Christians, how do we avoid an unhelpful moralism? And I'm sure you understand what I mean by that. And then how do we integrate teachings from Scripture that I alluded to with the application of public policy? So thank you for your attention, and now I'd like to invite you to either ask questions or make your comments. And I see lots of hands coming up. Yes? Good, good point, because they drink less alcohol and what... Okay. Yeah, I, it could be looked at from another perspective. That is the health outcomes in Muslim countries where they have a high fat diet but less alcohol. Thank you. That's a good, good example. Yes. Yeah, I think you're onto something. I don't have the data, but we know that to be true among Native Americans in, in North America. They have a lower tolerance for alcohol. They produce less alcohol dehydrogenase. So uh, I don't know the data, but that is something that needs to be researched. You know, the, the issue of alcohol as a problem among Asian people hasn't even been thought about because we continue to assume that North American medical research results just should be applied across the whole world. But you're, you're onto that. I think that's a good point. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I hope so. Do we see in the North America these days truthfulness about the negative effects of alcohol and like in the media? Are we seeing that? I mean, certainly binge drinking and college kids fighting and getting in accidents, yes. But beyond that, do, are we seeing more of it nowadays? Maybe a little bit? Not so much as with tobacco, certainly, where you, you see that effectively. Yeah? It was seen that Yeah, how to, how, to use this, how to apply this in China, we haven't gotten to that point. On an individual level, yes, but in a group sense, how would the Chinese take this data and think of a locally appropriate way to help their people not lose the, the, in a sense, sacred event of those meal parties that you talked about, but in a way that's less health, less detrimental to their health? Is that what you're after? Yes. Yeah, that's a very good comment. Okay. Yeah, yes? Yes? <laughs> 
Ja. Uh, do I agree with the issue of we need to make us? And we need to do the same thing with with alcohol, and overcome the the positive pressure that. Right. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> so po- positive social pressure uh, with regard to, the, yeah. And in China, you can imagine with a group culture, the pressure to drink a lot of alcohol is very strong. And if you don't, so how to, how to change that pressure, you know, in a positive direction is, is a difficult one. But I think you're onto it. Yes, it's very important. That's why these issues are multi-sectoral. It's not just a medical issue. You know, doctors have been telling people to not smoke for 30 years. But we've needed this multi-sectoral approach to actually get success. Yeah. Are you a university student? I'm 23. I'm a grad student. So okay. Alcoholic. So you're so you're more just you're shocked at the results and how do we so then how do we deal with it? On the one hand, the other problem is we don't know what kind of alcohol they're 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 drinking. Now obviously it's assumed that well a, a beer is going to be this big and wine is going to be this big and liquor is going to be this big. So one drink is one drink because the alcohol content is about the same. Um, but the fact is that what the, what kind of alcohol is being consumed is also a factor, and uh, so the the data are I think based on general populations, and what they're arguing is that uh, red wine is beneficial. So it's, um, I think there's a lot to be done socially with that. Yes? What it's worth, the alleged benefit of wine has been criticized on the ground of studies that are based on the Mediterranean. Oh. I think those the the data is pretty strong, and I think they're able to con, you know you can control for that in a, in a population of subjects being being researched. So, 
I, I'm not sure that that, I mean, that's easy statistically to control for. Uh, I think the, the more serious issue is how do we keep people, how do we allow people to take one glass of red wine, say, every day or every other day, which is seen to is known to be health, health, healthy and health enhancing. And then how do we stop at one glass? And how do we stop at the red wine? And so I think that's kind of my argument is this is a multi-sectoral issue. And this message that alcohol is good for you, is cardioprotective, is people aren't just taking what's beneficial. And it's being applied not only in the U.S. but around the world. And therefore, little, too little is being done to address what I think is a global epidemic of alcohol consumption in excess. So it's damaging to the individual as well as the society for a lot of different reasons. I'm not on a crusade against alcohol. I'm more of a researcher. So, but I think that's the general, the gist of the talk. Thank you all for your interest.